0: Osiris
1: the former frontman of Fish found himself in hot water this morning in Washington County. Ernest Trey Anastasio was charged with driving under the influence of drugs this morning in
2: Whitehall. The police chief says the 42-year-old Fish frontman told them he had smoked hashish and taken prescription drugs before they pulled him over. The drugs weren't prescribed to him, so
0: they charged him with criminal possession of a controlled substance and driving under the influence of
3: drugs. Welcome back to Alive Again. In this episode, you'll hear about Trey Anastasio's creative rebirth and how he followed his compositional path from orchestras to Broadway. And of course, back to the Trey Anastasio Band. Thanks for tuning in.
2: Ray Anastasio wants to get sober, and he doesn't want to go to jail. I think I'm still processing that. That was just up there. Just getting sober, you know what I mean? Like, and also reassessing. I mean, I think it's almost like an oversimplification in some ways, but, you know, like what happened was so fast and so weird and so exhausting and huge. You know, that, you know, have like a get married in 1994 to have a baby in 1995 to have another baby in 97. Like nobody had children. I was trying to deal with this family thing. And then all of a sudden Fish got like really big and the scene got really big. And and then subsequently kind of dark. It was just all moving so fast. I couldn't really see what was happening at the time. It's been like hard to talk about. I was in a, you know, felony drug court program. I'd been arrested and I was basically under house arrest for 14 months living in this apartment. I had a curfew and I had to go to the jail and get drug tested every morning. Couldn't have a car. I had a bike. And everybody left me alone. In retrospect, I'm so full of gratitude for that fact. I just was alone, you know. I was thinking about like my my house in Vermont. Was, it felt like it was right over the hill because it's like on the border of New York and Vermont there, and I, I like, I wanted to go home. I wasn't well before that, and it really, I'm grateful that I'm still alive. Now, it's been 15 years, this year, of sobriety. The sea is so wide, and the boat is so small, and the sun burns my skin in this liquid time. I wrote a lot of music there that, over time, has come to mean more and more and more to me. Liquid time. Everything was about time because time was so slow. You know, that was the one that goes, the sea is so wide and the boat is so small and the sun burns my skin in this liquid time. Well, that was like, I felt like I was totally adrift in life. I didn't have any of my friends with me. I wasn't talking to anyone except for Sue and my parents and my kids. But for like about a year, I didn't talk to anyone, Tom, nobody. And I felt like I was like drifting in this boat. And that's what Liquid Time is about. Backwards Down the Number Line was the first co-written with Tom and he wrote to me. It's been about a year, it was on my birthday. Hello, I'm Tom Marshall.
4: Yeah, so it was definitely the longest time in our entire friendship that I hadn't talked to Trey. I was going on about a year, and I had tried a couple times, of course. I had no idea how my friend was doing. I had always been told that there's no contacting him right now. And so I bumped into Ernie, Trey's dad. Uh, must have been the end of 2007, and it happened to be Trey's birthday, and I said, "Hey, Ernie, could you please tell Trey happy birthday for me?" And he said, "Tom, why don't you just tell him yourself?" Here's his email. And I was like, wait, Trey has email? That's uh, another story. That was revolutionary in itself. So I got home, and and I wrote him a birthday poem, and I sent it to him. And uh, he called me probably two hours had gone by at most, and it was just like the old days. He had sent me a song written from that poem that I sent. His first words to me were, Tom, oh my god. <laughs> and we were both crying. There was so much to talk about hearing that song and realizing, you know, that we still had it, right? <laughs> that we uh we could still write together and music had kept us together even throughout the silence. There was so much emotion packed into that moment and of course into into the song as well. And that version of Backwards Down the Number Line, I still listen to it all the time. It's one of my favorite things ever from the entire library of demos that Trey and I have.
2: Happy, happy, oh my friend, blow out candles once again, leave the presents all inside. And then I also wrote Valentine, which Tab plays. And I love that song. That was like, I was doing like meditation and prayer a lot. You know, I was getting sober, so that's what you do. So I had my eyes closed and I was doing that. I kind of was imagining standing in a field and like being back in contact with like electricity and like the beauty of life. And when I kind of opened my eyes, I sang it into my phone. Exactly like it is on the record. And that's why it has these weird chord changes in it because I left them. so I was just like silence dark and long and the, and the thunderclap splits the night. and I'm standing in this field. storms are all around me all through the sky I see strings of electricity. The Valentine part was like a Valentine's card to God. like thank you for like not uh, you know abandoning me. And then I did time turns elastic. In and out of focus, time turns elastic. In and out of focus, in and out of focus, time turns elastic. In and out of focus. Which I got into this habit of writing the framework for these long composed things, either on the piano or on the guitar. I wrote each section in a different altered tuning. And then in order to be able to play it so that I could hear that the form was right, I had to conceptualize a middle of the road altered tuning and relearn all the fingerings. <laughs> it was almost impossible, but I had nothing but time. That's why it was hard for Fish to play it when we tried to play it because I couldn't play it on my standard guitar. So there was this whole rigmarole that had to happen, but it was done first as a solo acoustic piece. I was like also coming into a point of time where I was like remembering being in contact with life, you know, like spirituality or something like just really on a simple level, just walking outside and the days were ticking by in months and I could smell again and laugh at a joke. And so all that stuff at the end of Time Turns Elastic with and as a carousel circles unceasingly, watch as the ripples decay in this rolling time. You know, I was imagining this, there's this boulder in the backyard of my house in Vermont, like where my kids grew up and I used to go back out there. It was like the place of like heaven for me. Like my kids running around in their bare feet and there's this stuff about the maple trees and stuff in, and there's a stream that runs by it. I was just closing my eyes and imagining being home. I couldn't go home, I wasn't allowed to go home and I wanted to go home so badly. That's what that song was about. And it was like through music and through lyrics, I didn't think anybody was even going to hear it. And then Don came and visited me, and then we started talking about turning it into an orchestral piece. In and out of focus. I listened to a lot of orchestral music and I studied orchestral music and my first music that I loved as a child was probably like the soundtracks that my mom gave me from, you know, West Side Story and I was always fascinated with the emotional nuance that you can get from utilizing that kind of elegant harmony. That's what it is. The first orchestral piece was Gaiuti and my friend melded together because they were written at the same time. And it was for the Vermont Youth Orchestra. That was me with the conductor, Troy Peters. I spent about four months orchestrating that. You can hear it on Seis de Mayo. I did all that on a Kurzweil. A Kurzweil is a synthesizer that uses sampled, realistic sounds. Uh, I did a lot of the orchestration on paper combined with the Kurzweil that I had at the time that had all the orchestral sounds. And I would record to a floppy disk these sections. So, one example would be the fast section. A guy goes, and there's some lines that I put in there. It's like, and then, and all of a sudden, it's like, wow, you get all these layers. What a rush. And the kids did great. Youth orchestras are usually pretty good, and Vermont had a particularly great conductor and great youth orchestra. I recorded the Gaiuti recording with a professional orchestra after I did it with the youth orchestra. And we did it in Seattle with a group called Seattle Music. So we were able to do this full orchestra 90 piece, which is you can hear on Says de Mayo. Then I wanted to bring an orchestra to Bonnaroo. So I ended up connecting with an orchestra of really cool Nashville musicians called the Nashville Chamber Orchestra. There was like an antidote to the National Symphony. The Nashville Chamber Orchestra was willing to go to Bonnaroo with their expensive 1800s instruments and play in the rain and the mud. And I was going to conduct this Gaiuti thing. So the conductor said, you should meet my friend Don Hart. And I met him and we were immediate friends.
5: Hi, I'm Don Hart. I've known Trey since I guess about 2004. I work with him a lot in in arranging and some co-composing opportunities as well over the years for various things from orchestra to string arrangements, string quartet, whatever, horn things. It's been a lot of fun. Originally, the connection was made through a group I was working with here at the time, the Nashville Chamber Orchestra. I looked at the orchestration that he did, which was basically a, a symphonic thing. The biggest difference between a symphonic string section and a chamber string section would
2: be just numbers and, and the sound of the output. I was doing what amateur orchestrators do. They overwrite. Don listened to my version of Gaiuti and said, I could probably make it sound bigger with 30 less people, which was my introduction into the art form of orchestration. And Don is a an, an artist of orchestration. We joined forces. We, br- we took a 60 instead of a 90 piece orchestra to Bonnaroo, and it was an amazing experience. Aside from having an
5: orchestra in that setting that is so unusual he also really wanted to conduct the, the group
2: at that time too i actually conducted <laughs> i learned how to conduct studied it and realized that not only am i not an orchestrator i'm also not a conductor but i do have ideas it was fun once and i was like i'm never doing that again <laughs> From that point on, Don and I continued working together.
5: I'll go back to a couple of shows we did at Webster Hall. And that was the last time I had worked with him before the hiatus. And I mean, that was, that was really a fun show. I was oblivious to any of the the signs that might indicate Trey was having some problems at, at the time. You know, it seemed like the show went pretty well and we, we, we had a good time doing it. And then I didn't hear from him for a while, which was sort of normal after we did something, you know. And and then I heard the news of him getting pulled over and, and the problems uh, that were arising. And I didn't hear from him for over a year. And uh, I, I reached out to management at one point, you know, see if there was someone I could get in touch with him. And and then at the end of uh, 2007, I think he called me directly. It was just so great to hear from him. He seemed like he was doing good. He told me so much about the process and of recovery and everything. And uh, the main thing that he was uh, getting in touch about was, you know, we had talked previously about... uh, doing maybe an orchestral thing and some other instrumental things and and co-writing a piece together. And he had something, he had Time Turns Elastic and a whole CD of other things that he he sent to me. We just started kind of going for it. There was a guitar demo of Time Turns Elastic, which I worked from. In January of 2008, I went up to see him. And and before that, I had listened to that demo and I put together a few ideas of some things that I, I thought might pair well with it from a compositional standpoint as well. That's probably still the biggest project, single piece that I've ever worked on.
2: He continued orchestrating for the orchestra shows, as well as writing some amazing, like incredible horn charts for Tab. Trey
5: has said to me often that he conceived these things, you know, basically for orchestra, but had a band to work with. So it has a lot of those elements in it to start with. It's like
2: low-hanging fruit, really. Orchestras function in a different way, rhythmically. The strings are, in a sense, the orchestra, and they are the drums. The strings are really laying down the groove. There's so many people on stage with an orchestra that there's a speed of sound issue, it actually takes a little while for the sound to get across. So if you start trying to drum to a drummer, it's not tight. And orchestras are the tightest groups of musicians I've ever played with. You know, if you listen to like the Tchaikovsky violin concerto or something like that, you'll hear the tightest musicians known to mankind. He basically
5: said at one point, you know, I think I've come to realize that the string section is the engine of the orchestra. It's really very true. I mean, they're, they're playing more than anybody else. And they have all these techniques and bowing and and different sounds that they they make. Being string instruments, they're very homogeneous in in some ways, but then there's all these different things you can do with them that just create so much energy and impetus. And so if you don't take advantage of that, you're really missing the point. Pops
2: concerts are often not that great with rock musicians because the orchestras are sawing away at whole notes in the background while people hear their favorite songs. We didn't do that at all. The idea is that this orchestra is going to get shown off for the master musicians that they are. The second violinist is going to be up there at the edge of their capabilities. Why? Because it elevates the whole orchestra. They, they want to play like that. They want to be on the team. They're always surprised when we showed up. Like, we played with the New York Philharmonic, and, like, we walked into the first rehearsal, and, like, the first thing they heard was, like, you know, you enjoy myself, time turns elastic, and divided sky. And by the end of the rehearsal, they were, like, kind of like, all right. He is so genuinely
5: appreciative of the musicians in the orchestras, the work they've put in practicing all, all these years, and he's, what, what great musicians they are. He thanks them every, every time He works with an orchestra and wants them to know how much he appreciates them.
2: You go in there with a mountain of humility and you understand that every musician on that stage is light years ahead of me. It's a massive honor to be on that stage with that level of musicianship. And you have to honor it. You Enjoy Myself, the performance at Carnegie Hall of that
5: song was, I mean, that'll stay in my memory for for a long time. But, you know, the the Boy God, uh, Man section, Trey didn't want to sing that didn't want to want to actually speak the words. And so tried to figure out a way to express
2: that in, in, in this case through a trombone solo. So we're going into play with the New York Philharmonic at Carnegie Hall. They have the greatest trombone player on earth, Joe Alessi. He's like a God of trombone. We knew that. So it's like, we've got to give Joe Alessi a moment. He's sitting over there. We're on stage with this guy. He's the best trombone player in the world. So we gave him the vocal section of You and Trombone. He had lots of moments throughout the night, but he had one special moment where we were like, can you make the trombone sound like, boy, man, watch your feet?" (laughs) Like he kind of stood up. It sounds funny, but he ate it for breakfast and like brought the house down. I was really glad that worked. The first time I ever got up on stage with an orchestra, they're in a curve and there's a focal point and they started playing and the harmony came. The cellos were playing one note of the harmony to my left. The basses were way over on the left and the violins were to my right, like 3D. And it was all acoustic, no amplification. And I cried, tears started streaming down my face and my knees got weak. I wasn't even prepared for how good music could sound. All those people playing in harmony acoustically with no amplification. It's the best thing ever. Sure, we play together in the band and stuff like that, but not like that, not like like an orchestra playing together. Nobody plays together like, like that. It's like an organic blob of sonic heaven.
3: Alive Again will return after a quick break.
2: lots of bands with horn sections. I wanted a horn section that was playing at the outer level of their capability at all times. If you listen to the horn arrangements in Tab, which was a 20-year project of of getting that book together, with not just one person, but many people that I've worked with, it's been a, a lifetime of sculpting the book. It's making it better and better and better and better and honing and honing and honing until they can breathe and we know when to put the horns down and move to vocals when their amateur is getting tired. I'm asking them all the time. When do you need a break? How's this range? Is that line too fast? In last tube. <laughs> Tab, Russ Remington was one of the players, and he's such a good player. So we were doing Last Tube, I think. Boom. So we had this groove from, right? Now we brought the horns into the room. I was playing on the guitar. So I showed them the voicings. First they played that, like just play the guitar part. So they play that. And then one day I walked in and Russ Remington was in the corner and he was playing this weird scale, like, and I was like, oh my God, take that. And I went, play it like this. I said, go. And he took his arpeggio, his weird jazz arpeggio, and tried to play what I just sung really fast. It was his weird jazz arpeggio. It was my gesture. He recorded it, it was really hard. Someone helped me write a chart of it. I was like, dude, write that down before we forget it. It went into the book. Then we were mixing the album in New York like months later, and Nicholas Payton, the legend of trumpet, was recording in the next room. And he came in to say hi. And I said, do you have your trumpet? I'm like, you want to play on this? And he's like, sure, man. At the end of the song, he played. And I was like, oh! And it's like, can you put a harmony on that? And he's like, sure. And he put three harmonies on himself. And then all four of those last phrases, All that went into the tab book. Horn players were replaced. It was originally Dave Grippo, Peter Applebaum, and Russ Remington. Now it's James, Natalie, and Jen. When they walked in, they got a chart. And many, 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 many times, hundreds of times, I've redone the book and redone the book and redone the book and redone the book. So the whole book is like, it's like this hybrid of time. It's, I'm so proud of that horn book. It's so badass. Hi, my name is Russ Lawton, drummer the trey anastasio band i remember i was playing at mike gordon's wedding at the up at the barn with some some of my friends and i was like hey trey i've seen you in a while and he goes we got to talk <laughs> and he pulled me aside in the back room it's like i'm like i remember going home telling my wife deb i was like man i just i saw trey today man he's talking about getting back together and two weeks later or something we're down the city where us and it was great anytime anyone joins the band. There's a, what can you do? What do you have to add? How do we write that into the book?
6: My name is Jenna Hartswick, and I play trumpet and sing in the Trey Anastasio band. <music> Natalie came in when her dad, who used to be in the band, had to go on tour with Santana. And so he suggested her and she came in.
1: My name's Natalie Cressman. I play trombone and sing in Trey Anastasio's band. My dad actually did a tour with Trey back in the early 2000s, and I remember actually going to see that as a high school student, and my mom brought me to the Warfield, I think it was, and I remember seeing Jen there and just being really blown away by just how exciting and diverse the music was, and that's where I first kind of met Trey and met Jen, but then many years later, I was, I think, 18. I moved to New York to study uh, jazz trombone at Manhattan School of Music, and Trey had called up my dad to, um, you know, we're booking another run of shows, getting the band back together, can you make it? And at the time my dad was touring like six months out of the year with Carlos Santana, so he wasn't available. He was like, well, I have an idea of someone that could be a really great fit. She plays trombone, she can sing backup vocals, she's really professional, she's a good sight reader. She also happens to be 18 and she's my daughter.
2: She came over to our rehearsal space, which is in my house on the Hudson. I remember the first day she came very clearly. I was so floored. Her tone and her pitch, it's a trombone. Trombones are not easy to play. Right out of the gates, she started playing these complex charts. There was nothing she couldn't play. My jaw was on the floor the first time I heard her play. And of course, so nice and kind and great to be around immediately fit into the family vibe, but can conquer anything on a trombone. So it opened up this whole world.
1: I think Trey really feeds on kind of youthful energy. He has so much energy, like it's insane, especially for someone that's not like 20 years old anymore. He still has that same excitement around music, that same drive to really sit and perfect the same tune over hours. So I think the, you know, being young, maybe, you know, has me well suited to that environment. I think he also loves bringing in people from different musical backgrounds and the fact that I kind of grown up um, kind of outside of the jam community more in the salsa and Latin jazz and Brazilian music. And um, that, you know, was a different ingredient, a different flavor to bring in.
2: Natalie has told me that, you know, if she hadn't joined Tab, she never would have played this kind of music. She was into, she's into quieter kind of jazz kind of music. Natalie, when she first joined, she was armed with all of the tools needed to become the A-list level musician that she is today. Standing next to Jennifer taught her a different thing. She was a little green and young when she first joined. Natalie. And Jennifer was like her mentor. And it gives me tears, because I remember watching it. There's certain things you have to stand next to to understand, you know? Like, if you watch, like, Jen take a solo, (laughs) she's, like, connected to, like, the magma of the earth. (laughs) And that kind of element, the heaviosity, when Natalie first joined, I saw her adding that to her already considerable repertoire and kind of picking it up a little bit from standing next to Jen. There was a level of Jen Hartswick badassery that was passed on right before my very eyes from Jennifer and Natalie.
1: Now me and Jen sometimes will look to each other, we're literally singing the same horn line at each other, like finishing each other's musical sentences. So it's gotten to that point where it's so immediate. And James is like totally in on that too. Now we have like this real kind of weird like horn horn ESP where we kind of can just hear something once and then go, we've got it fully flushed out for our sections.
2: We had Russ Remington before James. The whole touring being in tab thing was not working for him so he quit and that's when james came and it was like perfect (laughs) he's so good his spirit is right he's a badass but he's also massively talented he can sing so well so now all of a sudden we could
7: do four part harmonies my name is james casey and i am the saxophone player slash background singer slash other percussion player slash other keys player in the Trey Anastasio band. I was a member of a band called Lettuce. And the horns from Lettuce also play in the band called Soul Live. And Soul Live does a thing called um, Bowl Live every year at Brooklyn Bowl. And in 2012, one of the special guests was Jennifer Hartswick. I hadn't met Jennifer Hartswick. The meeting was pretty fortuitous. He came in, started singing, started playing. I was like, oh, well, you're good. She's like, yeah, you're good, too. It's crazy we haven't met before. Cut to Jazz Fest the same year. She was there. She was like, I actually recommended you for something. like, I hope it comes up. I'm like, that's cool. That was in April. In August, I was in Arizona at my parents' house. I got a text from Jennifer saying, Trey's going to call. Pick up the phone. First of all, it was three hours different between Arizona and, and uh, New York and the East Coast, so I was already asleep. Somebody called my phone from a number I didn't know. I let it go to voicemail, uh, went back to sleep. Woke up a little bit, listened to the voicemail, and this guy named Trey said he had a band called Fish and uh, he wanted me to join his other band. And I'm like, I don't know who this person is. So I hung up the phone and went back to sleep. But like after I woke up, you know, started my day or whatever, I called up Eric Krasno, who's a member of Lettuce. I was like, hey man, some dude hit me up named Trey. And he's like, hang up the phone right now, call him back. Just hang up the phone, call him back. Call me back. Whatever happens, just hang, hang up right now and call him. So that was, I did. And that was the beginning of me uh, in this particular situation. Then I immediately had to move back to New York because that's where everything was based at the time. I met Natalie Cressman earlier that year. She and Jennifer invited me over to have like a horn sectional before meeting Trey And then we had rehearsals for the tour that started the next, like rehearsals started the next week, if I'm not mistaken. After I accepted the gig, Trey sent me like a giant folder. And I'm talking about like maybe like three inch, four inch thick folder of music because they have so many songs.
2: I mean, he's the complete package. He can play piano, he can write, he can play, he can solo, he can play baritone. One day we were in rehearsal and all of a sudden he sang something. He was hired as a horn player. And I was like, oh man, your
7: voices. He found out that I could sing because during rehearsal, there was something that the, uh, the girls were singing and there was a third part there. And I was just like, you know, I mean, I had this extra flute mic, maybe he just, you just know, sing a little bit into it. He heard that and then the next day I had my own dedicated singing mic. And it's been like, I, I've sang more than I've played saxophone in that band ever since.
2: So Then it was kind of like, okay, we're gonna start doing four part harmonies all of a sudden we had the fourth. And that was just something that came up in band practice. The, The family was complete when James joined the band. He's incredible. He can sing, but his like tone, his spirit, and his connection to all of us, particularly to Jennifer and Natalie, they have a unity thing going on over there. And like the balance of the three of them is just, they're all so good. They're all beyond, but they don't compete They compliment each other. Once he joined, it's like, whatever you can do. If Natalie, I find out that she speaks Portuguese and speaks Spanish, then she's going to sing, you know, 1977. They laugh about it a lot. It's like, don't tell Trey that you can do something. It's kind of like a band rule. Like Jennifer told me she played the tuba one day, and then it was on. She had to bring the (laughs) tuba.
7: I'm a perfectionist, he is not. So, I really appreciate the fact that he allows mistakes to be made that can create other things that could get to where he's trying to go. Like, there's a a saying that they have in music, like, loud and wrong is better than quiet and right. If that wasn't the answer, that's fine, but at least you tried it, as opposed to being reserved and not being able to allow yourself to try try different things. You know, he's like, no, 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 we'll try it out. We'll try anything. We'll, we'll see if it works. And if it doesn't work, we can try something else. So we'll try it until we find what we're looking for.
1: Trey is, is definitely like a supremely gifted band leader, but he also knows how to empower people to kind of fill their own space in their own way. Like he doesn't want me to come in and just be a copycat of some other trombonist. He's like really hiring me to do my thing and I think that's really rare in, you know, someone of his caliber in terms of his his talent and also just his notoriety to, for him to be comfortable delegating or comfortable, you know, giving us those spots to shine and trusting that it's going to be a good moment. You know, I think that's really special and unique and his tireless um, energy wanting to perfect things, you know songs that he's been playing for 20 years we will still sometimes sound check over and over again cuz he has an idea of how he can make it just that much better and that that work ethic i think is also really rare for someone that's at his point in in his career where he could just play the hits and the audience would love it but he's trying to find that extra ingredient that's going to take it over the top um and you know that's a really humble kind of state of mind to be in that you know despite the the outside world is telling you how amazing these songs are, it's not enough. You want to find that, you know, that next um, that next level to take it.
8: My name is Ciro Batista, and I'm uh, I'm the percussionist from Trey Anastasio band. We make you feel uh, essential. He knows uh, until where you can go, and he push the button until you go, but without forcing. He, he's a very gentle person too. I'm very grateful to know this guy and to play so much music, and I hope we can continue doing.
0: My name is Ray Pachkowski. I'm the keyboardist in the Transtasio band. I think every time we go out, like with the addition of people and songs and the songwriting and just, you know, it's becoming more, I don't know, refined or focused or, you know, it's like over time you play together and you just get down into what the sound really is for a group.
2: east coast. Talk about the documentary and and the story behind that. In
0: 1995 this filmmaker S.R. Bindler shot a competition in rural Texas, East Texas, in which contestants were invited to come to a Nissan dealership, place their hands on a new hard body truck and whoever could stand astride the truck the longest without taking their hand off actually won it and drove it off the lot. So he shot this in 95 and it was released in 97.
3: I think the original contest was 87 hours. Wow. Uh, it's a cross-section of, of race, uh, religion, color, uh, age, you know, from yeah. t- a 20-year-old to a 70-year-old, and everybody needs that truck. And it's, right. And it's such a, uh, we, we, you know, we're like, it's a metaphor
2: for the American dream. You're not straight out of Broadway. How did this happen? How did you guys come together? I'm having a great time writing songs, and Amanda right. asked me to join the team, the hard-body team, and so off we went. I have a family history in that world. For one thing, my mother grew up in the city. She's so cool and she still lives here. And she was lucky enough to have a mother who was a musical theater lover in the golden age of Broadway. My mother used to go see, she saw West Side Story 5 out of the seven first nights or something like that. when she was a teenager, like opening week. She saw Mary Martin and Oklahoma and all the classics. When I was a kid, she always wanted me to be part of New York. I used to do musical theater and stuff like that, too. But she'd always bring us to shows, mostly actually in New Jersey, that the the, the the original cast would play at this uh, Bucks County Playhouse, which was much less expensive than the Broadway shows at the time. But it was the real cast and we saw all the shows. So I always wanted to do that. And I was very lucky to be asked by two incredibly talented people, Doug Wright, Pulitzer Prize winning genius author. And... Um, Amanda Green, incredible songwriter, asked me to be a third partner on a show they were doing, Hands on a Hard Body. And so off we went. It was amazingly fun. They're both massively talented, and I learned so much. Best part was that it's a community that's incredibly inclusive. Everything I love, everything I want the fish community to be. Once you're friends, you're like friends for life. And and the tapestry extends out. John Rua, was a lead in the play. He and I had become incredibly close friends. He choreographed the clones. He choreographed the the wombat. Carmel Dean was the music director. She was the one I was talking to when I was stuck on the platform. She was music directing the clone thing.
9: My name is Carmel Dean. I am a Australian musician based in New York City. And I primarily work in the Broadway field. Initially, I was contracted to work on the vocal arrangement. Trey being such a great musician and Amanda, they did have some great ideas for how vocals were going to be used for the ensemble. And uh, I really just worked together with Trey and Amanda to expand on what they'd done and to make it the most exciting and theatrical version of what, what they wanted using all of the voices in the show. It was incredible that we have this rock and roll legend who has this um, knowledge of and love for musical theater, making his own show. Trey has always been theatrical. There's no question about it. He does have this great sense of storytelling.
2: Jeff Tansky, I met early on, long before the show went to Broadway, and we're still working together.
10: Hi, my name is Jeff Tansky. I'm one of Trey's musical collaborators. I was the associate music director. Um, It was a good friend of mine who uh, was music directing the production in California that he brought me on. The way that Trey was going to go about basically orchestrating the show was to do it the way he knew how, which was to get musicians together in a room for a week and to explore and to kind of come up with stuff and come up with ideas as opposed to just, you know, pen and paper. So once we did that, we essentially kind of recorded an album for lack of a you know a better word uh, up at the barn in vermont and then it was my task to write all that down
2: since i was the orchestrator except for the string arrangements which don added at at the end i just wanted to make an album so that's the way i did it You know, I went to the barn and I asked Tony and Russ and Paige was there. And Jeff Tansky and Larry Campbell, two guitars, me and Larry Campbell. And Bryce Goggin was there. And we just did what I always do, which is band practice. Like, oh, you know, pick that up why you put the kick drum up there. Oh, man, that, that feels good. You know, it was very alive and organic. Amanda was there, of course. Doug came up and our director, Neil Pepe, and everybody hung out in the barn and ate food and stood around in a circle and we played these songs. And it didn't really have lyrics on it. It was really just for arrangements. But it was pretty badass.
10: That was my first time meeting him at all. And I didn't even know who Larry Campbell was. I didn't know who anyone was. I didn't, I barely knew where I was. I mean, I was pinching myself. I just sort of got to arrive and watch all this music getting created and we were there for i think five days it was a lot of time spent um on the music and i essentially was just there to observe you know my because i there was there wasn't anything i could do until like it was all sort of done but it ended up being extremely valuable for me to be there because then i just had um I, i i i had a viewpoint into how he was approaching this whole thing
2: so then what we did was in order to go to broadway you have to have everything charted so they just maybe jeff but then ultimately also don basically charted the whole, like exactly the bass lines that Tony played, exactly the guitar lines that, that Larry played, you know, I made sure they're exactly like the demo record.
10: The, the nature of that particular job just led me to, I, I mean, I had to speak with Trey a lot. He, he was very hands-on, you know, with how this was coming together.
2: One of the things I started doing from Hands on a Hard Bite on is, is really embracing accurate, accurate charts. There's a process that this was so important for me to learn. It's a very tense world that requires an enormous amount of money. It's in New York City. The theaters are expensive. The rehearsal spaces are everything is hyper expensive. And there are investors. Subsequently, everything has to be m- incredibly professional. So when they say a rehearsal is from 12 to 1, the musicians at 11.59 are like milling about. And at 11.59.7, they sit on their seats and the bows go up. Then it's like, boom, everybody starts rehearsing. Nobody talks, nobody snacks, nobody looks at their phone. At exactly 1 PM, you could be in the middle of a sentence. Can you guys do one more? Everybody just stands up and leaves.
9: What was tricky was in a Broadway show, I mean, you have to set something and you have to have it be the same, exactly the same every night, eight shows a week. That I think was one of the big challenges was um, having Trey decide what the definitive version of something was going to be. So he was bringing this great knowledge of the rock Genre to theatrical storytelling, but then we had to ultimately set it for the Broadway paradigm, which is that it is set, that it is the exact same thing every night. It was probably one or two nights before opening night, and there has to come a point where you freeze the show so the actors can do the exact same show once or twice, at the very least, before the opening night audience comes in, before the critics come in. So so these actors just said, no, our brains are full. We can't change
2: anymore. There was this amazing moment. <laughs> I was running up and changing something about some song. and oh, We were almost in previews, I think. I ran up and I said, can you just try this one, like, change this one word or something? I don't know, can you just try it? And she kind of looked at me and she said, no. It was like, that was the moment when the show was locked.
9: Trey talks about that all the time. You know, it was a great lesson for everyone that at some point you just have to say, this is it. This is what it's going to be. It was so fascinating watching him work and seeing him adapt to to what that needed to be.
2: I had a mentor. His name was Ernie Styers. He taught me composition, but he used to say things to me. One of them was, art lives by limitation. When I got to the musical theater world with the hard body, I saw that in action. The limits are just everywhere, everywhere. There are rules that can't be broken in theater. Break them at your peril. It's just like a mass of impenetrable rules. And then you have investors and all this stuff and time limits. And yet they get so much done. You figure all this stuff out. And the Broadway lesson on that was huge. There's so many moving parts and so little time. It's its a miracle if you go see one of those shows with all the choreography and the moving sets and everything that they even get it done. Hands on a Hardbody was a turning point for me too, because by watching Amanda and Doug, I watched them have the guts to write, you know, in such an elegant and brave way about these characters who are real people. All the people in Hands Hands on a Hardbody are real. They went down to Texas, they hung out with them, they went to their houses, and then they wrote. This was like a real revelation for me like have the guts to write from a simple point of view. And I am grateful to the two of them for that, Amanda and Doug, for that I got to sit with them and be part of that kind of process. When you're walking around New York, like I'll run into these Broadway people. Everybody's just, you know, so down to earth and normal. It's really a community and that's appealing to me. That's the most important thing to me. Jeff and I play together a lot. We play together at least four days a week.
10: It really sort of started when I was helping him prepare for the uh, Grateful Dead shows five years ago. That was the first time that we were actually in a room and I was playing with him a lot. And we were just kind of getting a feel for how each other plays and it just seemed to work.
2: The funny thing was like when we did fairly well, not only had he never even heard the dead, He certainly didn't know any of those songs. He's not, he's from the Broadway world. We have this teeny little room, there's no windows, the same room that we did the Fairly Well thing in. We do our morning thing, we meet there at noon. There's just a piano and I have a teeny little lamp, and we just play. He's kind of a mega talent, so. (laughs) But it's just fun, you know? We got like junk food and coffee. It's just me and Jeff, pretty much. (laughs) We've been doing it for years now. He's like my local hangout and play pal. My music friends became my second family from a very young age. Like I always want everybody in the boat. It's a family kind of thing, you know, he's really, it's, that's important to him, you know, and that's the way I am. I didn't grow up wanting to be a side guy. I was always been in bands, you know, so that's a cool vibe to have. Still is. It's amazing. I feel very fortunate.
1: It felt like family kind of right off the get-go. It's like I gained four uncles in the process, five uncles really, because then zero came back into the mix, but. Yeah, it was so supportive and loving and especially those first few tours, I wasn't used to like the kind of fans and, you know, people would walk always like make sure that I was walking with somebody to the bus, you know, so I wouldn't, you know, be on my own and, you know, dealing with any energy I didn't want. So that was so beautiful of them and it really felt like they were welcoming me into the family.
8: Very few people in the world have that. He knows how to gel the people, how to put the people together. You not feel like you are working for him, you know, but you feel that you a family, you know. Like my relation with all the musicians in the band, it's very deep. And they are completely different than what I, I, I was doing.
6: But it's a very tight-knit family, and when something happens within the family, it's, you know, it's like it happens to us all. And Ray had a medical emergency not too long ago, and everybody bandaged together and said, all right, what do we do?
0: Trey was in the hospital all the time. Russ would come up all the time. It was very powerful. You know, I was very sick after the operation. Trey came over to the house. After I got out of the hospital, I could, you know... Barely walk, it, it sucked. It was, it was just sucky. And he would come over, you know. So he would come over and just be like, "Hey, man, you know, like that." Blah, blah, you know, <laughs> he's so, Dre's so funny. He's so, he's so optimistic and so upbeat. He just wants to help and and support. That was all very uplifting for me. I mean, it just helped so much. And then. Betray was constantly like, like as soon as you can, come back, play, you know, come, come back and play. And then did a couple shows and it seemed to work. I was very tired. And, and I didn't want to, like, let the band down, too, like, by not having the stamina to be able to do a show, you know. So I was feeling that, too. And betray was like, ah, fuck that. You know, just stop playing. You know? <laughs> it helped me to heal. And I feel very, very lucky that that's what I ended up doing in my life.
3: Next, on the final episode of Alive Again.
2: I think when Ghost in the Forest was happening, that was very informed by Hands on Harvey. Like my friend died, and it kind of felt like my childhood was dying.
6: And for all the years that I have known Trey, I understood him on a completely new level, watching him and Fishman interact. I was like, this, this is deep.
2: All of these things that I've done over the years, playing with the orchestra, orchestrating Gaiuti, doing the fish, doing the tab, all of these things kind of culminated at the beacon. There was a couple of moments in there where I was like, this is what I've been trying to achieve all these years. Just like, oh my God, this is it. For the treatment center, it was a three hour Zoom call. And I just sat there and listened. And I just thought to myself, I've never been part of a project that felt so good in my heart. I'm so glad that we're able to contribute this to a community that really needs it.
3: Alive Again is brought to you by Osiris Media. Executive producers are RJB and Matt Dwyer. Produced by Eric renner Brown. Interview and production assistance from Jesse Jarno. Production assistance from Matt Pavuso, Art by Mark Dowd. Thank you to all the guests and contributors. My name is Wendy Rollins. See you next week for Episode 4. Osiris.